0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Well, those were some of the sounds from uh, Leuven at the weekend in particular the fan zone in the centre of Leuven where most fans congregated for the men's road race which uh, was the climax to a week of racing in Flanders at the World Championships and we're going to be talking mainly about that thrilling men's road race in this week's podcast. My name is Richard Moore, I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello Richard. And Daniel Freib. Hello Richard. Daniel, you were uh, in Leuven with me, were you able to sample much of that incredible atmosphere? Because where we were in the in the media zone, up by the finish, we were a bit detached from the action, as it were, so were you able to get in amongst the crowds at all?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the crowds were extraordinary throughout the, the time that we were in Leuven, the few days that we were in Leuven for the road races, even in the morning, Rich, I mean, I went for a run, I did the whole circuit, or pretty much the whole circuit on a run, and it, already then particularly on the Wapedest climb the the crowds were three or four deep um, you know I was getting cheered up there it was it was it was, um, yeah, it it was quite exciting actually I must admit it was quite a it will be quite a memory um, and then certainly after the race Leuven was still rocking although I think a, a few people had peaked a little bit too early around about midday as far as the festivities were concerned that was the sense that I got a bit like Remco,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well. Get on to that. I mean, Lionel. Um, at, at one point in the race, you messaged me to say, "Do they realise there are 160 kilometres still to race?" Because it was it was an extraordinary race, wasn't it?
3: It really was, wasn't it? I was also asked you the question because I can't remember a World Road Race Championship, Men's World Road Race Championship, that was as good as that uh, for as long. Um, it was appointment viewing, really. From that point onwards wasn't it and, and arguably before you know there was a good uh, 160 170 kilometers where it was uh not a race you could take your eyes off and daniel you suggested that uh, innsbruck was as gripping in a in a different way but this was uh this was all out racing wasn't it i mean some big riders laid it down very very early on and i asked you the question richard you know why is this is it because um Riders are now, with all of the data, they know they're not quite as scared to go four hours out. They know what can be sustained. They know, you know, how they can take it on, and and they're more in tune. And and and, you know, it's it's kind of counterintuitive. We think that all this data is uh, going to lead to kind of controlled, negative, boring racing. But perhaps I don't know. I'm speculating here. But perhaps it's going to lead to the opposite. If riders know that their limits are further out than perhaps they thought they were. I mean that's how it appeared to me as a race. You know, no one had any fear. The race was starting I think with 170 I, to go and that was that.
1: I think that's a factor and I think also there's a there's a greater emphasis on on being on on the front foot and not being forced to chase the race. That's probably not new but it's it's taken on a greater significance I think in the last in the last couple of years. It was yeah, such a such a great race, such a fascinating race, but the the crowd really did add to the the spectacle, the atmosphere, all the writers talked about it. There was an estimated 350,000 people in Leuven. Population of Leuven is 100,000, so you can imagine what that was like, and a million by the roadside all the way. We take we take these estimates sometimes with a bit of a pinch of salt, but that, that seemed believable to me.
2: Yeah, I had it somewhere between a million and 1.5 million on the roadside and over a million watched on TV, which would mean that approximately a quarter of the population of Belgium was watching somehow.
1: Well, Tom Pickcock at the end said it was more like uh, being in a football stadium than on on the road. But you know, it wasn't. This wasn't. A, you know, it wasn't like a, I don't know, a Watford Arsenal game, was it? It was more Celtic Rangers. It was a. It was a proper. It was a proper electric atmosphere. And uh, yeah, just uh, something I'll not forget. And I made sure to to stay in the center of Leuven and the fan zone for as long as possible before going up to the finish and doing some interviews. Well, here from some of the riders a bit later on. Um, I bumped into a few fans there, um, members of Forza Lampert, the Eve Lampert Fan Club, and uh, Fred Wright's father, Phil Wright, who's an actor, and he said he'd bumped into a Belgian fan in the in the pub when he was getting a drink, who would told him that he hated cycling, but came for the beer. <laughs> and uh, I think that, that uh, speaks to what you were saying a bit earlier, Daniel.
2: About 1.5 million people at the roadside, and I think about 1 million belts, on display i think that was one of the main oh the, this the was your takes, observation wasn't it the hot takes um for me from the weekend the the, the belgians and then and their exposed belts it quite extraordinary My, it was like a giant
1: rider cup i mean not extraordinary not extraordinary really i mean belt belts are quite common i'm wearing a belt now you are quite a big big belt where i don't even
2: own a belt i don't think but the belgians you know they <laughs> they're um, they're very fond of their their fruit, their beer, and their belts. That was one of the main takeaways from it. It's a right. strange
1: takeaway that to to go away for a week in, in Flanders and come back with with that being your um, that being your abiding memory. But well, anyway, people kept referring uh, to the race as a belter, and I thought that's what they meant. <laughs> it was a belter. It was a belter. But it was it was the climax, as I've said, to a week of of great racing in Flanders and. Uh, We'll be covering some of that in the cycling podcast Feminale later this week. It's a busy week because we've got a friend special coming out as well later, which is my kind of story of, of, of my week in Flanders um, and delving into the, the culture of cycling in Flanders as well. Um, But have you got a news roundup for us, please, Lionel? I have indeed, Richard.
3: Daniel, uh, no belts awarded in cycling. The world champions in boxing, of course, get belts, don't they? Um, Very large belts, but no, just... Usually exposed. Yep, just the rainbow jersey for the world champions. And Julian Alaphilippe has won the world championships for the second year in a row. Of course, Peter Sagan, the only man in history to win three in a row. But Alaphilippe is one of six riders to have won the men's title Two years in a row, the most recent, Paolo Bettini in 2006 and 2007, Gianni Bugno, Rick Van Looy, Rick Van Steenbergen and Georges Ronsa, uh, the other double winners. But it was a really swashbuckling performance. I always use that word when talking about Julian Alaphilippe, but uh, it was a tremendous attack. And astonishingly, swashbuckle, um, buckle, is that a, another belt oh, reference? swashbuckling, very good. What's the etymology good. of
2: swashbuckling? I don't know, I must look that up
3: well it's a, is it not a fencing time you know uh, uh, i always uh, think of zorro uh, yeah always think of zorro or the musketeers uh, or d'artagnan um but yeah it was uh, it was a great ride and we'll de- dissect that race uh, the big question i've got for you guys is uh, about remco evenpool i mean he did a fantastic job for his teammate the question is which of his teammates was it? Belgium's Waverman <laughs> or De Quick-Step's Julian Alaphilippe? Either way, he couldn't lose, could he? I mean, uh, another text I sent you, Rich, at some point, I think just after he'd sat up, was that he's like a footballer scoring a hat trick in a four-three defeat. If you look at it from the Belgian perspective, he was probably the most eye-catching man of the race, uh, other than Alaphilippe. Uh, but we'll get into all of that. The other road race winners uh, over the weekend in the junior women's road race. Zoe Baxted, who'd been second in the time trial behind Russia's Elena Ivanchenko, broke clear with the American rider Kaya Schmidt and outsprinted her to win for Great Britain. Uh, Baxted is, of course, the daughter of Magnus Baxted, former Paris-Bay winner and British National Road Race champion Megan Hughes. So. Uh, you know, something in the genes there. She's also the younger sister, of course, of Eleanor Baxted. The men's under-23 road race was won by Filippo Barancini. Uh, he's been riding for Trek Segafredo as a stagiaire. He was fourth in the Coppa Sabatini recently, and he will turn fully professional for them next year. And the first Eritrean to win a World Championship medal was Biniam Germe, and uh, he will be riding for Anta Marche in the World Tour again next year. He's been riding for them this year. And the women's road race, which Richard, you will uh, take to pieces with Rose and Orla this week uh, before the women's tour kicks off next week and, and I take over for a bit. I mean, Oh-ho. that's going to be, I don't know what's the definite? is that Cat Among the Pigeons? I don't know. Is that the right analogy? Probably not. Um, Elisa Balsamo won for Italy ahead of Mariana voss a very uh, good finish. Um, but Vos missed out on winning her fourth World Road Race title, and that was her sixth silver medal. Balasamo
2: was head and shoulders above the rest, wasn't she? This is a hair joke. Yeah. Balsamo means hair conditioner in Italian.
1: Ah. Well, I mean, you, you're catching us <laughs> out here. With, yeah. All our Italian
3: <laughs> Just, listeners there, chortling jokes, away, well ahead of, to of which us.
1: which we're not... We're never going to know the punchline, but well, it's a very good joke now that we know. Now that we know that, excellent. I'll use that. Just
3: uh, on the world championships, because uh, just a slight deviation from the news roundup, because we ran a competition to win a pair of Jaybird Vista Sport earbuds, uh, which I'm actually using to talk to you chaps now, and obviously listen to you chaps now, uh, wireless earbuds very very uh, fine piece of kit and uh, the competition was to predict the winner of the men's world road race championships Uh, we ran this competition on twitter and astonishingly no one among our hundreds of entrants picked julian alaphilippe which i I was flabbergasted by it is amazing so it's a rollover And we will now extend the competition to who will win men's Paris Roubaix on Sunday. Uh, Check our Twitter feed, cycling underscore podcast, uh, to enter. Um, we'll also post the link to the competition on thecyclingpodcast.com. So who will win the men's pay rebate on Sunday? Some other racing news um, around the World Championship Week. Riders who w- weren't taking part in the world, or some were, but some weren't. Uh, the Grand Prix denan in northern France. Jaspers Philipson won ahead of Jordi Mears and Ben Swift. And then he added the classic Paris Shawnee ahead of Alberto Dainese and Andrea Pasqualon. That was Philipson's fourth one-day race win in 10 days. So he is going very well. A little bit of transfer news. Confirmation that Vincenzo Nibali is going back to Astana from Trek Segafredo. He rode for them from 2013 to 2016. Of course, won the Tour de France for them and the Giro twice. And Owen Dool, the British rider is leaving INEOS Grenadiers to go to EF Education. Uh, David Lapartion has been re-elected as UCI president for a second term. The French round of the new Champions League cycling has been canceled because the velodrome just south of Paris has been uh, a COVID vaccination center and it will not be available for the Champions League. The 2025 World Road Race Championships will be in Rwanda. And the Trobre-Léon, uh, one of my favourite races, the one-day race that is held in Brittany. It kind of combines the farm tracks, the Ribinou, uh, with the beautiful Breton coastline, uh, has been, uh, I was going to say taken over by ASO. That's not quite right. It has joined forces with ASO, the Tour de France organisers. So we can only imagine that they have big plans for Trobro leon in uh, the future. And an extraordinary anti-doping story just for the length of ban that has been handed out to the German rider Bjorn Thurau, whose father Dietrich was a real time trial specialist, won many stages of the Tour de France and wore the yellow jersey back in, what would that be, the 70s and early 80s?
2: 1977, I think.
3: Thank you. Um, Yeah, Bjorn Thurau, who rode for Europe Bora, Argonne and Wanty, He's been suspended for nine years and a few months for anti-doping offences a range of anti-doping offences and he has had all of his results pretty much all the results from his pro career wiped out he's 33 and hasn't been racing for a few years but uh, um, yeah a a long suspension not that it's going to make any difference to him I guess because he is retired but uh, that's that's an interesting story given the teams that he rode for when uh, some of those offences were presumably happening. And just lastly, I don't know whether you picked up anything while you were out in Belgium about Eggen Bernal and the rumours swirling around about his future. Uh, Rumours that he's not happy at Ineos Grenadiers and that he might be leaving. A whole range of teams linked with him. Um, Dave Brailsford says that uh, Bernal is staying. But then there's also been some rumours that Browsford's about to take a sort of Director of Cycling position or a Director of Sport uh, position at INEOS overseeing uh, all of the various sports that they are involved in. But uh,
2: not sure that that's the case either at the moment. There were a few murmurs on that story. It's certainly going back and analysing very closely, paying very close attention to the words that Dave Brailsford used, it was a little bit of sort of football manager speak, Um, sort of shades of the infamous Gerard Piquet of Barcelona tweet or Instagram post about Neymar, Sequeda is staying when, 24 hours later, Neymar, I think, signed for PSG. Um, But remember a few weeks ago we talked about, well, I mentioned the fact that Bernal's agent, Giuseppe Acuadro, had told me that the team was very interested in a renewal at some point in the coming months. Since then, obviously, we had the long term renewal by Tade Pogacar, uh, while well, he added a, a year to what was already a, a very long term and lucrative deal. And there was some suggestion in Belgium that this had sort of had spurred uh, Aquadro into action and he w- was possibly using it as leverage to go to Ineos and asking for a pay rise for Egan Bernal. Not sure. I also spoke to some Colombians who suggested that there was some truth to the story that Bernal wasn't terribly happy with certain things happening in the team and things that had happened
1: at the Vuelta. So I think it's it's one to watch, definitely. I I, I think it's very interesting, Daniel, because I think, yeah, the Pogacar uh, context is interesting. He's signed another six years. I would imagine uh, an estimate would be about five, probably five million euros a year he's probably on. I suspect Bernal's agent, uh, Giuseppe Quadro, would look at that and think that Bernal, who is on another two years with Ineos, on around three million a year, just under—I think it was a twelve million euro contract he signed over five years with a, a sliding scale of, of of salary. I'd imagine he'd look at that and think that Bernal should be on a similar type of deal or or not far off it. And so that that if he's if he's trying to. Um, Uh, you know negotiate a new deal that could be part of the bargaining process but what's more interesting is that in the very recent past quadro and Dave Brailsford have been very very close and obviously a lot of quadro's riders are at Ineos and uh, you know just
2: the fact that But if you are leaving or well known to have been quite unhappy this year, I mean you remember last year they wrestled Andre Amador out of Movistar, Mm. he didn't ride a single Grand Tour, this is a, a rider who's built his whole career on Grand Tours, he didn't Right, a single one this year. He's pretty unhappy. I think Ivan Souza has left the team for Movistar. There was this, well, this turnaround whereby Movistar, who weren't doing any deals with quadro, have suddenly done three or four with him. They've even been mentioned in connection well, with Bernal. I was going to say.
1: I was going to say this would be the, the the natural the, the you know, Usainy um, who fell out with Acuadro. The they're now they're now working together again. You know, who's to say that the seesaw couldn't swing back in the favor of Movistar and uh, Bernal ends up at, at Movistar?
3: The seesaw, I like this. A Quadro, the,
1: the pastry chef on one end, a big bag of flour on his side just to tip the seesaw <laughs> in his favor. Well, A Quadro's in the middle and, and Brailsford's on one end and, and Unzo is on the other and they're kind of, yeah, you know, and then A Quadro just slides towards whoever. I don't know. I don't know where <laughs> I'm going with this. Um, well, that's the news roundup. But we're all well. That, it's not
3: the end of the season, is it? Because uh, Paris Bay is at the weekend. The first women's edition on Saturday, the men's race on Sunday. The much-awaited. It's been a long, long time since we've been able to enjoy Paris Bay because of the pandemic, uh, postponed, uh, well, cancelled twice. And uh, it's got a lot to live up to, hasn't it? After that World Championship
1: road race. And you'll be there, Lionel. And uh, then you'll be going straight to the women's tour and covering it with lizzie banks and rose manley nightly I, coverage coming up on the cycling podcast i
3: will indeed uh well petrol shortages permitting i'm in the uk where there is supply chain issues with uh, fuel at the moment uh, we, we're just coming to pay Bay, not for the race we're just coming to fill up the car
0: the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159.
1: Yes, thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. We're very grateful indeed to them for their support of all the cycling podcasts. And if you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, do go to supersapiens.com. Well, the men's road race on Sunday is what we'll mainly be talking about in this week's episode, and we're going to hear from some of the riders a bit later on. Um, but where where do we start? I mean, that text message that you sent me, Lionel, with 160 kilometers ago, is maybe a, a good place to start, because the race really did kick off early, and one of the the subplots all week was... Remco Evenepoel, uh, Eddie Merckx was in the, the press in Belgium, accusing him of not being a team player. And it was hard to know when Evenepoel was part of that pretty early move, whether he was being a team player or, um, you know, riding potentially for himself. It was a long way out. There, there was this, and one of the intriguing things about the whole race was the the discussions that seemed to be going on within the Belgian team. You know, Tim de Klerk was in that big move as well with Avonapol and he seemed to be trying to communicate with him a lot and he didn't seem very happy with how he was riding at times. A bit later on, Tish Benoît seemed also to have a bit of beef with Victor Campenarts. And one of the factors here in this, in the whole race, and this, this applied eventually to, uh, to um, Julian Alaphilippe and the French team as well, is so there's no race radios. And so riders are, are 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 kind of thinking on the hoof and communicating as they're going, and that made it a more probably a more interesting race. But for a team like Belgium, with all that pressure, all that expectation, and the favourite among them, a group of riders who've never ridden together before as a team, and some of them, like Victor Campenarts, quite inexperienced really in in that kind kind of scenario and riding in that sort of role. It was just one of the very intriguing elements of the race, wasn't it? And I don't know about you, Daniel, when, when that move went with having pull in it, did you think, as a lot of people thought, that was potentially the move?
2: Well, I think it would have been completely unprecedented for a move well, that began at 180 kilometres to go to really... Well, that, I mean, I'm talking about the the one with with three riders, which was launched by Benoit Cousnefrois, he, we saw him talking to Julien Alaphilippe just as they came into, it was on the, the Smeisberg, wasn't it? Um, and within seconds of that conversation, he was launching himself up the climb. And there wasn't much hesitation, was there, from Evander Paul? I mean, you know, you mentioned the, the lack of race radios, Rich. The, the way it looked to me, and I think this is probably the most logical explanation for some teams' tactics, was that in the pre-race meeting, they were individual ri- riders were given phases of the race to concentrate on, and with the French, you know, there were, there were clearly a number of riders who had been briefed to try various moves at different times in the race, and that started with the French from about 200 kilometres ago. There was um, the criminally underrated Anthony Turgis who had tried um, Cosnefroy, then managed to get away with Evaindepaul. So, I guess that Remco had been. Briefed, told given permission to go in moves and any move that looked dangerous basically probably he he was probably given quite a wide brief you know at any point in the race if you see someone dangerous go away and let's not forget that in the european road race championship just a couple of weeks ago cosnefroix and avainnepaul were components of one of the key moves and the french there as well had tried to light things up very early So I didn't necessarily think it was the the key move. um, But then when the group, the bigger group, came from behind with people like Roglic and and Tratnik in it, it became an as green. It became clear that it was very dangerous. and, And that was going to dictate the pattern of the race because Italy were forced um, to react they reacted pretty slowly because they had riders who had crashed behind the ballerini and, and Trentin were caught behind and it took them a while to get organized and the Belgians blocked the road as well so um, from that point already the, the, there was a, a key well a, a key phase of the race um hang on a second one key team, um, one of the main teams, the Italians had, had lost a lot of their potential, had a lot of their potential blunted. And um, that that really sort of set things up for uh, a very aggressive race and a race which, with no race radios, and in that part of the world in Belgium, one of the things you, you hear from riders when they talk about racing in Belgium on those roads is that, I mean, Lionel, you mentioned earlier power meters and data. I think one of the characteristics of those races is that people don't look at their power meters. Um, they... They don't have time. And I think as soon as the sort of shackles were off, they remained off for the rest of the race. No one really was able to control um, what was happening for the duration of the, well, the remaining 180 kilometres.
3: I mean, that little phase of the race from about 105k to go to 175k to go, so much was happening that ended up being important. And it really shaped the race, didn't it? Because as you mentioned, Daniel, there was that crash at the back of the peloton where uh, Mads Pedersen, the World Championship, a couple of years ago, Danish rider uh, rode into the back of Ballerini and Trentine, who uh, seemed to be cr- in the process of crashing already, but that put them all on the ground. Then, shortly after that, Christophe Laporte of France uh, punctured, and that was more or less at the same moment that Cosnefois, his teammate, was attacking at the other end. And... Uh, the, the riders that, that went with him initially, Magnus Court of Denmark and Remco Nepal of course, of Belgium. Yeah, that was a dangerous move. And, and when I saw it go, I know I often talk about in world championship road races particularly but you also see it especially in the tour of flanders and this was a kind of an amalgam of the two uh, in a way you see the kind of the attack before the attack the one that goes with normally sort of 60k to go or something that will have the kind of uh, you know the the, the just a second tier of riders maybe the second favorites or third favorites in the big teams might go in it and and here it was happening with 180 kilometers almost to go and and that's what teased out um, you know, Askreen, you know, Roglic, I'm not sure was necessarily a serious contender to win, might have been, might not have been, but it was very interesting that he went across to that with um, a teammate, Jan Tratnik, and then, you know, some real horsepower in there as well, Stefan Biesiger, um McNulty of the USA as well um Ben Swift was in there and as you say Daniel Mag- Biggs- Magnus Court
2: yeah Magnus, Magnus Court, was Court was there as was well one
3: of the first ones um to to react wasn't he so it was a really powerful move and it 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 really unsettled uh the peloton uh particularly the Italians because of course they had missed it really through no um no no tactical fault of their own but because they were uh still uh Trentine and Ballerini still picking themselves up and uh you know, getting back to the front, and we saw more or less the whole Italian team at the front chasing, it was a proper chase as well, and then, you know, Gianni Moscon punctured at a bad time for them, he probably would have been quite useful if, if not, you know, on the front in the chase, but, uh, you know, it, it, it put him at a disadvantage, and then we had this kind of standoff, didn't we, for sort of 40 kilometres, where it wasn't quite, certain is this going to go further and be really dangerous are people going to get it back and go across or is it all going to come back together and eventually that's what happened but it was a really exciting kind of way to to kick off the race and although there was a bit of a lull in hostilities after that um it meant that uh, the, the nerves must have been pretty um shredded among the the riders from the big teams and i guess the the other big question is what happened with Wal van Aert and Matthew van der Poel? I mean, we saw at one point I mean, with 130 to go, van der Poel off the back in a group of his own. Um, but they were, relatively speaking, pretty anonymous.
1: I, I mean, on the one hand, it was too early for the race-winning move to go, absolutely. But on the other hand, it's never too early if the right combination are there and, and if nobody chases behind. And, um, you know, the Italians did react when it was about a minute and and had they not done so that that break very strong break could have raced into a lead of 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 a few minutes and then been very hard to pull back they reacted as
2: soon they reacted as soon as they could yeah didn't they i mean it wasn't it wasn't a case of them um watching the the gap go out and thinking at a minute right it's time to go It, it was it took them several minutes several kilometers to actually get organized and again the lack of race radios probably played its, played its part there. They didn't know where Trentin was or Ballerini was. But the French had... Well, th- there was a, a comment that Thomas Vauclair, the the French national coach, made a couple of days before the race, which turned out to be quite prophetic or quite telling, maybe gave a bit of a clue as to what their tactics were going to be. Um, he, he sort of invited people to remember that in Doha in 2016, that... The, the race had turned. The key moment had been at 180 kilometers to go, and it turned out to be um, at that point that Kozniewicz made that attack. Um, but I don't think that was designed. That was never designed as the winning move, was it, for Kozniewicz to 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 go to the finish in any kind of group? It was simply, and you know, with races like the World Championships, there are very few. You know, we can we can sort of um, speculate about the different permutations as long as we want but there are there are very few things you can do to prevent the strongest guy in the race winning um as it turned out alaphilippe i think was the strongest guy in the race or to or to turn the the sort of fate of the race in your favor one of those things is to make it as hard as possible as early as possible and that's what the french had decided to do wasn't it they the, the, the race could easily have coasted. I mean, how many world championships have we seen that have coasted along um, with a, an anonymous break down the road, which, which it was uh, on Sunday. There was a break of seven riders who posed no real threat. It could easily have coasted to 50K to go before things. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, that was probably a lot of teams' plan. It was probably what a lot of teams thought was going to happen. And, you know, it took... I mean, I think Thomas Voeckler, when we when he was a rider, he was a little bit of a maverick. He was a little bit of a madcap, and it took sort of madcap tactics, as we saw at the European Road Race Championship from the French, to to break that paradigm, to to sort of shatter the the template of what what we thought was going to happen.
1: But also the the Danes, you know, you talk about different riders being um, assigned to different phases of the race, and I, I was pretty surprised to see. Magnus Court and um, yeah, he's a fast finisher as well. You know, would would be very handy in a small group. And Casper Askreen less so perhaps Casper Asgreen, but to see those two so active so early um, was that the
2: quality it, of was that the the reputation and the quality of the French rider that that launched the attack. Kozlov, if that had been um, Christophe Laporte, would it have been different? Would would this the fifth tier Dane have gone with him instead? I don't know.
1: Shoot! Shoot at the rear of the peloton. Cycling podcast team
2: car at the back of the pack, please. That said, PK,
3: the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN. Now, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. And Richard, you mentioned that I'm shortly going to be off on the road. I'll be joining you over there in France for Paris-Roubaix at the weekend. And then I'll be at the women's tour, traveling around, working, using my laptop and my phone, using hotel Wi-Fi or just using my laptop hooked up to my phone so I can get online to do everything that needs to be done for the podcast, including uploading files, uh, surfing the internet and so on. I may even need to log into the Cycling Podcasts. Financial accounts, heaven forbid. And you wouldn't want me doing that without being secure and safe online and out of the reach of hackers. And that's what a VPN does. It stands for Virtual Private Network and it basically uh, offers you protection and security when you are online. And I've been using NordVPN since before they started advertising in the podcast, in fact, just because I'm aware, I became aware really, that surfing. Uh, the internet connecting online in hotspots or hotel receptions probably not the smartest and most secure way to uh, carry on our business and so i signed up for nordvpn and uh, i know that when i am uh, logged in basically all of the data and details um, are secure and safe so nobody can snoop on our bank account details or get up to any mischief um, which is really important especially if you are working on the road but equally if you're just um, on a leisure trip you don't want to uh, have your tablet or phone or laptop hacked at all and using internet connections that you're not 100% certain about is a risk too far for me anyway. uh, If you would like to find out more or even get up to 73% off a two-year plan plus four months bonus access to NordVPN protection for free, go to nordvpn.com slash TCP or use the code cycle. This is a limited time offer, so be quick, but you can get 73% off a two-year plan plus four months free at nordvpn.com. slash TCP or use the code CYCLE and those details are in the show notes.
1: Well, lots of questions around the the Danish team and and ultimately, you know, they ended up with a medal and with the rider that perhaps was was assigned to the final phase of the race, Michael Valgren, another one of their riders who's been in great form recently. But a lot of the the focus, the attention all day was on the Belgian team as it had been on Saturday in the women's race on the the Dutch team. Um, It was a similar... Scenario where you're watching you're watching one team all race and another one uh, on in the case of saturday road race the Italians actually had the same numbers there and were ultimately able to 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 win the race and on Sunday in the men's race um, the Belgian team were up against strong Italian teams and Danish teams but really we were looking to them all day to dictate things control things. Um, and that ultimately, perhaps, uh, and we'll hear Tom Pidcock address this a bit later on, but that maybe actually harmed the chances of of Walt Van Aert. It, it, it was a curious race from him and, and the Belgians in a way, and we'll speak about Remco Evenepoel in a moment, but Van Aert, the big favourite, huge, huge support for him um, out on the course. Uh, and I thought he rode quite an unusual race for him, and I don't know whether that's just because on the day he didn't have the legs, but we've seen him in the past sometimes, do too much too soon and and really um, uh, not ride in a very uh, you know tactically savvy way. It's Luke, but but often win anyway because he is so strong. He seemed to do everything perfectly from a, a tactical point of view on Sunday. Uh, but when it came, when when those moments came, when those crucial moments came, when Philippe had to go in the Smesburg, for example, Van Aert normally would have would have followed that and and didn't appear able to on Sunday. So I think the big takeaway is perhaps that Van Aert just wasn't on his best day but you know did the Belgians do everything they could did they make any mistakes I mean with Evnipol in particular
2: I think they were perfect Rich I thought they were absolutely perfect and even when uh, Philippe made his moves on the penultimate lap had Van Aert been on a, a decent day which I, I don't think he was and I think he was pretty explicit about that in his interviews after the race and um, then the thing to do there would have been for Stoven to set the pace and to slowly bring Alaphilippe back, and Van Aert would have been the favourite in in that sprint. You can never be completely sure because there were fast guys in that in that group. Seneschal was a threat, Colbrelli, Nitzolo, they were all threats. So he he might still have finished fourth. But um, I thought they rode the the perfect race um, right down to. You know, there are these moments where you, people on social media look at what's happening, for example, and, well, you know, some of us do. And we see, for example, Remco down the road and the Belgians sort of pulling behind. There was a moment when the two groups, the Remco group with um, 50 or 65k to go when I think they were coming into the Moskastraat. And there were three Belgians on the front. Teixe Banute was on the front riding hard and Remco down the road. And it looks strange. Um, you know, you've got a, a dangerous guy in the break and then you've got the team riding behind. But there was a good, there was good reason to do that, um, to take Van Aert into the bottom of the cobbled climb in ideal position. And also to end up in the situation, in the perfect situation which in which they found themselves with Stove and Van Aert and, and Evanapool with 50k to go. I mean, they couldn't have dreamed of a better situation than that.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I mean I joked uh, slightly flippantly at the start about Ivan being the perfect teammate, but who for? For his Belgian uh, teammate Wouter or his quick quickstep teammate Julian Alaphilippe? Because there is a question there. Um you, you mentioned Daniel about the French making it hard from such a long way out, Evna marked that move. Um, but then when that group swelled shortly afterwards, the, the fact that Tim De Klerk was in there, as you mentioned, Rich, was interesting. And, and as you say, there, there was a bit of conversation going on. It did almost look like De Klerk was, uh, you know, I don't know, coaching, um, persuading, just reminding Evna Paul of the of Shaking the big his head at times as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, obviously, De Klerk is the, the sort of the senior rider with both to uh, Koenig-Quickstep and um, and uh, the Belgian team. So we'll know Evenepaul very well. Then, of course, Evenepaul was instrumental in the next big move with 85 kilometres to go. And then, of course, he made the final uh, big split, uh, 40 kilometres to go, where I think from that group of 17, the top 15 came. So that really was um, the move. And then he sat up, absolutely spent, with 26 kilometers to go. And Philippe went another eight kilometers later. So on the one hand, you could say, um, you know, yes, he did everything possible for Belgium. But then, you know, would, you know, he if he delayed a bit, uh, you know, his early aggression, uh, perhaps saved a little bit for the final phase. It is slightly unusual, perhaps, that he wasn't able to play any a part in the final 25 kilometers of the race so I, I wouldn't say absolutely perfect but i mean you know you can't you know perhaps can't measure we are, we,
1: the problem is well we always judge these things on outcomes don't we of course um, and it's the same on saturday's race the dutch rode an almost perfect race as well um but the italians won and, and well let's hear actually what what the what, how do you the want crowd... to
2: invite me the dutch rode an almost perfect race do you want to invite me on the cycling podcast feminine uh, to discuss that with you
1: yeah okay yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> they did ride an almost perfect race the, the, at the end of the race, with 200 metres to go Marina Vos was in the perfect position to win it, and had she won it, as she often would have, as she would have done maybe 8 times out of 10 we'd have said that the Italians gave her a perfect lead out, because um, you know, but, but these, are the, these are the margins let's hear what, how the Belgian fans responded to Evan the once he'd finished his shift and had been dropped by that group <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that Evan the himself posted that clip on Twitter, because in some senses, he came out of the championships with his reputation enhanced and, and all the questions about whether he could be a good teammate kind of put to bed, even though the result wasn't, uh, in, in Belgium's favor, which is a really interesting thing to ponder. Um, because I was certainly not, not, not towards the end. There was, you know, clearly at the end of his race he was burying himself to try and help Van Aert but in that earlier move I wondered whether in the back of his mind he was thinking this could be my chance because I said it in last week's podcast his chance of winning the race was to go away on his own with about 40 or 50 kilometres to go and and for there to be hesitation behind because of the threat of Van Aert so there was just a very, if he was going to win the race that's how he would have been able to win the race and I, you know, coming out of the world's and looking ahead to future world championships, you know, you wonder if the Belgians will be so willing to to put it all on Van Aert and have him as their their sole leader as he apparently was on Sunday, or to hedge their bets a bit because Paul rode fantastically well. He appeared to play the perfect teammate, and he showed how strong he was.
3: Yeah, I think it probably gives us a clue about Van Aert how he was feeling, particularly late on in the race. In that when there was the reaction to Philippe's attack the belgian that went in that move was uh Jasper Stoven um Michael Valgren and Nelson Nelson Paulus were also in there and of course uh, Dylan Van Baaler for the Netherlands so um yeah perhaps Vanart you know just wasn't wasn't feeling it um but uh, I do think that the way Evenepoel rode was uh, it was certainly eye catching wasn't it and I think my analogy that uh you know, he scored a hat-trick in a 4-3 defeat for his team. Uh, probably holds up a very good day for him. Um, but perhaps it's not such a good day around the dinner table with the Belgian team that evening. But then when he joins up with his De Kernig quick-step teammates, he'll probably get a, a slap on the back as well. I mean, well, I mean lose, Van or- it, it
1: was quite... Sur- yeah, that's kind of the point I'm, I'm making. Van Aert, um, surprising really, you know, given his consistency given his, you know if you think back to the Tour of Britain a couple of weeks ago where Philippe was, was riding as well and then the time trial also kind of proved that Van Aert was in tremendous form but as he said afterwards he's not a robot and I think had he been in the kind of form he'd been in even at the Tour of Britain I think we'd have seen a, a different race and we'd probably seen him being able to, to follow uh, Philippe when he went.
2: Another factor we haven't really talked about, Chaps, is this route, which I think was so anomalous, so unusual in the sense, in its whole sort of configuration, um, that the fact that there were circuits of uh, Leuven and then they went out to the Flandrian circuit and then they came back, and it was a bit of a hybrid between a, a sort of uh, a, a Wallonian classic and a, hi- and a flanging classic not so much in the length of the climbs but just you know where they where they were in Belgium and and the climbs and, themselves
1: I mean no no Paterberg no Quarremont no none of the familiar Tour of Flanders climbs at all
2: no and then the the circuits themselves which I think there were 29 corners in the Leuven circuit so um you know you you calculate how many times they went around there and the Flandrian circuit and how many acceleration you know mini micro accelerations um that that entailed and it's really you know we say this every year with amstel gold amstel gold's a race that gets overlooked and we we sort of poo-poo it as the lesser of the spring classics but it, it is unique in the sense that there are 30 uh, the 33 climbs usually in amstel gold a lot of road furniture narrow roads and and it's it's quite unlike the other well, the, um the Arden classics and and similarly i think this was a sort of a type of race that we just don't have on the calendar 268 kilometers with well there were 42 sort of nominally classified climbs you know that some of them were were only a you know 30 second efforts the saint antoniusberg the last one where alaphilippe went very short indeed but um very difficult to simply look at someone's palmares, look at someone's pedigree, and to say that they were going to be ideally suited to to this route. I mean, there were two two thousand. I think depending on whether you looked at Veloview or the riders Strava fi- files, there were um, two thousand three hundred to two thousand five hundred meters of climbing, which you know some World Championship routes have had double that, but. Uh, it, it, it clearly, partly because of the way the French took it on, it, it ended up being an incredibly selective and aggressive sort of route. And we saw that as well in, in some of the other races, the women's race as well. I mean, there were a lost count of the number of attacks there were there. It wasn't quite as attritional um, in the sense that the riders came in in a bigger group, but we saw in the sprint there in the women's race just how tired they all were. Yeah, I think. And, yeah. Um, Sorry, go on, Napon, go, on, go on.
3: Yeah I think the route does have a lot to do with it I mean it would have been so easy just to do the traditional 12 or 13 kilometer circuit with the same two three climbs on it and everyone just gets into a rhythm um, of racing I mean naturally especially over a long day everyone knows right the climb's coming up I move up here I slip back there I'm you know this is now it's getting more important and it's a it's a much more of a slow burn um, of a race and we have seen in recent years as well this relatively recent phenomenon of sort of having a point to point where they ride into the circuit and and the sort of the ride in is just attritional isn't it it's it's not really um contributing to the drama of the race It, it it just from a pure geographic point of view and a psychological point of view, we haven't really got to the race yet till you reach the circuit. Whereas there was really no, it, it, they would have known the course, they would have known what was coming up, but it was changing that rhythm all of the time, wasn't it? Quick, quick, slow. And and in the end, it was like shaking up a bottle of fizzy water or, or champagne because that was how it went that it did feel like the stress and attention had reached such a point that somebody had to break it. And it was Alaphilippe who had basically the courage to go again. I thought too far out 18 kilometers from the finish, but it, but it turned out to be the right move.
2: Well, I think even from an emotional nervous energy point of view with the size of the crowds as well, Lionel, um, you know, particularly maybe for the Belgians, I think that probably even added an even greater sort of toll. It was, it was probably, absolutely a a euphoric experience for them to ride it but you know again going from the leuven circuit to the the circuit and and you know the route by them would have been sort of hardwired um into their their brain they would have known exactly what they were doing but they were sort of constantly thinking Um, and and i do sometimes feel with the world championships when it is just circuits um they the riders do become almost zombified you know particularly for the first half of the race or the first 3 quarters of the race they're just turning around like goldfish and it, it did not feel like that at all
1: well let's hear from a rider who addresses exactly that point and it is a rider from the Belgian team um spoke about the complexity of the circuit and the difficulty of of organizing yourselves on that circuit is eve lampert of the the Belgian team and the Quick Step of course um I had bumped into his, or had arranged to meet his fan club, Forza Lampert, earlier in the day, his sister among them. And, uh, well, they were out in great force, apparently Belgium's biggest uh, rider fan club, Forza Lampert. So, um, a lot of support out, out for him, but he spoke about you know, how overwhelming it, it was as well, on a, what was ultimately a disappointing day for the Belgians.
4: Well, I think as a our team, we did a really good job. We were there all the time, we were never in defense. In the end, there were 70 guys in the break and uh, three, uh, three Belgian guys. So that was not bad. But yeah, for me, uh, it's a disappointment that we don't have the, the medal. Uh, we, de- we deserved it and it didn't come. So um, I don't know what, what to say. Was it was a difficult race to, to organize because the, the, the course was Very difficult, uh, very nervous, chaotic. Uh, A lot of. uh, It was also really technical parkour. It was not easy at all. I have a really high power for uh, more than six hours, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm quite broken after this race. An amazing performance from Remco today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. uh, He saved us sometimes when we when we could not react. He was there in the front to to go in a big group. So. uh, like I say, we, we were never in defense mode and uh, that was perfect for us. Any consolation in a, a teammate winning?
1: Uh, I mean, a trade teammate winning? Oh, uh,
4: yes, it's, it's, I'm
1: happy for Julian. And uh, big crowds, Forza lamport were out there in,
4: in, uh, in full force. Uh, was it nice to race in front of those crowds? The crowd was unbelievable. I never seen this before, even not in Tour de France or in Tour of, of Flanders. So uh, it was really unseen.
0: The cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science.
1: Thank you very much indeed to science and sport for their support of the cycling podcast. If you want 25% off all your science and sport products, go to sciencesport.com and and enter the code SISCP25. Lionel, have you stocked up for our ride on Friday? We're riding the pave on Friday. Um, you'll be uh you'll have the science of sport gels bulging out your pockets i imagine I, for that i will i will be i'll be consuming them as needed though rich you know i won't be overdoing
3: it I'll well, just obviously be, i'll be spotting just checking you know for your tail when you're getting a bit tired over the pavé and then
1: uh, you won't need you won't need your your duck and butter descending <laughs> gels for that
2: no
3: i'll need my sponge pudding uh, pavé gel <laughs> I almost
2: got—I almost got taken out by a shower of gels and energy bars. I was standing at the side of the Leuven circuit, uh, fairly early. I think the first time the peloton went through there on Sunday, just sort of, you know, standing in the crowd and and enjoying the atmosphere. The peloton swept by, and it was obviously a point where people were discarding gels and energy bars. And um, yeah, got whacked by—I uh, think it was an SIS bar. In fact, I'm going to have a word with Stephen Mool. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you, yeah, what, Dangerous some kind of padding, some
3: padding on the
2: SI? Well, it's your fault for
3: standing in the waste zone.
2: Why, well, why were people lobbying? Why were riders lobbying
1: uh, je- um, bars and gels that they hadn't even opened?
2: I mean, I could understand
1: them chucking away other products, but not science and sport. <laughs>
2: maybe they were pelting uh, me. Maybe, I, maybe had they recognised
1: me. <laughs> had it been a an energy bake, it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have hurt so much. There was some great footage of Matthew van der Poel lobbing a bidon from the middle of the no bunch s- yeah he's no steph curry is he to try and get it into uh, a bin and he and it just hit it hit the rim of the bin oh. um i mean thomas van den spiegel the chief executive of flanders classics we'd have managed that because he's a former basketball player <laughs> um he he is i i met him for for the special that's coming out we hear quite a lot from him in, in the special that's I, coming I, out you're interviewing this him.
2: Week. you're interviewing interviewing him on Saturday morning in the in hotel. Your hotel and I stood next to you in dripping um with sweat in my full mm. running kit with a, a Movistar Star um casket on and you didn't even I was waiting for you to turn around and oh, acknowledge I didn't me. See you it. just completely ignored me.
1: I did I did see his eyes wander um and fix on, on an object, but I didn't know that object was you. He's seven foot tall, uh, two meters fourteen centimetres and he has a custom made bike. I'm sure no it's one's 70, ever seventy centimeter frame. I'm Sure,
2: he loves people pointing that out. I'm sure no one's ever mentioned that to him before I don't think that he's people, seven I,
1: foot I, tall. I got the impression that nobody had mentioned his height to him before. <laughs> uh, oh, brilliant! <laughs> well, he, he was very polite I'm about it. I mentioned, I mentioned Van Spiegel and uh, and Forts Lampert both both will uh, uh, feature in Flanders Redux, the Friends special that's coming later this week. It's a bit of a bumper episode. So if you're a friend of the podcast, you can get that and you can sign up as a friend of the podcast at thecyclingpodcast.com. Yeah. It, On to the French team. Sorry, oh, no, Lionel. I was just going to say it kicks off a, a bit of an
3: autumn fall season of Friends of the Podcast episodes uh, coming up oh, over yeah, October, it does, November, does,
1: Doesn't it, Lionel? Oh, it does. Doesn't it, Lionel? Yes. There's a, there's another bumper episode coming, which is introducing Lionel Burney. I listened to that at the weekend.
3: Uh, I, well. I may make the WhatsApp exchange public at some point when that episode comes out, because um, your, well, your comments were, what,
1: were instructive. What I would say about that is that Orla did a fantastic job. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on to Julian Alaphilippe. I mean, nobody rises to an occasion like Julian Alaphilippe, do they? Uh, remember in in Poland 2019, the time trial there when he was in the yellow jersey at the Tour de France, Imola last year at the world championships, he seems to be able to pull something extra from himself. Um, and he's glor- he's glor- he's, he spoke at himself in the press conference afterwards about the importance of panache to him. And watching him, jersey unzipped, riding on the hoods, looking around, shaking his head, gesticulating, it defied a lot of the, the current thinking around, you know, aero and skin suits and riding to a plan. Andrew Greipel made that point in a in a tweet as well. You know, we saw him back at the car talking to Tommy Vokler having quite an animated exchange while riders in the group ahead of him were kind of hanging on. And there were moments like that and on the circuit as well where it just looked like he had energy to burn. Um, He's like a hyperactive toddler when he's in that that mood, isn't he? He looks like he's fidgety, he's restless and that he can just ignite at any moment. And I I thought watching him, watching his body language, that he was the the favourite for the race. Had I been able to enter our competition to win the... uh, the 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 headphones I would probably um, entered at that point uh, because suddenly he looked like the guy um, and as you say Lionel he went very very early uh, but as he said in his press conference and I hadn't really fully appreciated this at the time I think Florian Seneschal and his presence in that group was really really important because we saw him win a, a bunch of sprint at the Vuelta he is a fast finisher I don't think he would have won a sprint in that group but he was the backup plan. And, and I think that allowed Philippe to commit fully to his attacks because it wasn't just one, it was several attacks. Knowing that had he failed, the French had a, a backup. And I think Seneschal, I think his presence just kind of liberated Philippe to make those efforts and to commit in the way that he did.
2: He did, Rich, but it wasn't supposed to because the plan was for him to follow the attacks knowing that Seneschal was in the in the group behind, not to initiate those those moves I mean I seen the circuit when we arrived in Leuven that I saw that wampus climb which was well it was the main if we're going to talk about the, the circuit being like a stadium at the weekend that was where most of the fans were concentrated the atmosphere was just incredible that was where I thought Ala Philippe could well break the elastic and there was this sort of this hard right hand turn into it you came off a of descent and then there was a dead right hand turn and it, it was short though um, a few hundred meters and I think seven percent average not that steep but that was the place where I thought he could potentially try something but on the last lap but I you know we didn't know I didn't know at that point that the race would have been sort of um, stretched and and really broken apart in the way that it was by the time they got there on the penultimate lap. And then, you know, Valentin Madouas did an, an unbelievable ride, just generally. He was in the move with, that went with 90k to go and sort of got caught with 50k to go. And and then he was still there on the penultimate lap to do that incredible lead-out, which was absolutely necessary on the wampus climb if anyone was going to get away. And, and yes, Alaphilippe went away, finally, he finally got away on the St. Antoniusberg, the next climb, but it was a one-two punch, wasn't it? Because he'd really, he'd hurt people on the Wampers, and then no one, I mean, the, the St. Antoniusberg, this was this small climb in Leuven, which the chapel at the bottom was is where, do you, do you guys, are you familiar with Father Damien? The, he was voted the greatest ever Belgian, he was a, a Catholic priest who... Yeah. who who treated, cared for lepers in on the islands of Hawaii in the late 19th century? And there was this poll a few years ago, which voted him the greatest ever Belgian. Eddie Merx was was third, but um his his remains are. Uh, are who was? Uh, hang on. Who was second? So, and with Jack Brel.
1: Okay, Although the French enough.
2: the French speakers in Belgium voted Jacques Brel um number one. But Father Damien's crypt is in this little church at the bottom of the Sant Antoniusberg, and this is apparently why they took the race um up that climb because it's one of the main tourist attractions in in um Leuven. And um yeah, that was where Junior Philippe buried buried the rest of the the, the Pelodon, what was left of the Peloton, wasn't it? But no reaction from the other,
3: the, the big, big riders, you know, Matthew
1: van der Poel. Well, I did, I did enjoy the question that people asked, why did no one react? I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Why did no one? No, the, I've seen, I've seen people oh, asking it's, why, it's, why did like van ever, not follow him? <laughs> I mean, because he couldn't, I, I mean, nobody I, could follow him.
2: I mean, there were certain riders, you know, why didn't, so, why couldn't they just have pedaled faster? <laughs> I, I I think there were a couple of riders whose positioning let them down. Tom Pidcock, well, he said to me after the finish. I think we'll hear from him, won't we, Rich? He 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 switched off a little bit because he'd seen Ala Philippe continually attacking and he thought that he, he he'd lost his marbles Ala Philippe that he was that he was committing harakiri with all of those attacks but he he sort of slipped by he was he was sort of in the middle to the back of that group on the Wampus and then he was even further back on the St. Anthony's he maybe could have reacted but i think the others were just spent i mean i was quite surprised i saw a few comments from including from Ala Philippe that um, he didn't think that he was nece- necessarily going to win until 2k from the finish. I I thought as soon as he crested the top of the St. Antonius Berg, I thought, you know, I keep talking about the elastic stretching, I thought it, it had snapped. I thought that was it over as soon
1: as he got over there. I mean, everybody was completely wasted, and they were wasted because the race had been raced from 170 kilometers out. Uh, it was funny in the press conference that Dylan Van Baal was asked about his great sprint for the silver medal, and he he laughed because he said it wasn't. He said it was the slowest sprint of my of my life. I mean, if if you watch the sprint, uh, I mean, Jasper Stuyven would normally you would imagine win that, but he was turning himself inside out just to stay with that that counter move behind. I mean, he he looked like me when I'm sprinting for town signs out with my Sunday group you know he was he was all over the bike and he's normally such a smooth rider and obviously a very powerful sprinter but he had nothing left and for him that was that was very unfortunate because it was his hometown and he and, and the Belgians left without a medal but it was it was a slow motion sprint that Van Baal won ahead of Valgren, but they were all they were all kind of on on their last legs shall we hear from one of Alaphilippe's teammates, Remy Cavagna, also the current quick-step teammate, of course. French road race champion as well, Remy Cavagna, he was uh, a non-finisher, but I spoke to him at the finish. A double win for you for, for France, and a, and a trade teammate
5: as well, a very good day. Yeah, it's a super day uh, with Julien, he was uh, the champion last year and now he's again champion. Uh, he was not uh, supposed to maybe to be the best on this parkour because there is some climbing but not uh, enough hard. But uh it's a jump and he's champion and uh, he made a difference all, uh, already and uh, when he has uh, some second i know uh, they're gonna see each other the guys behind and julian was gone so it was super but I'm so proud because last year i was on my uh, on my uh, apartment to watch the t v and I was crying in my uh, in my uh, apartment and this year i'm there so it's Super. Where were
1: you for the race today? Oh,
5: well, we did all, all. the guys did a perfect race. Uh, we, we had the, the, the plan to to attack directly when we arrive on the first uh, part of Louvain. So we we everybody tried to go with one guy, with two, we try to go with two, because we try to go with a sprinter for, for make the I the race a bit dangerous, uh, but the guys uh, always follow us, but it uh, was nice. Uh, Julien, he liked the race, when uh, it's more it's hard, more it's good, so we did, uh, we, make, we make the hard harder harder, uh, and at the end, it's a walk, so. And he seems to be able to perform very well on
1: these big occasions with, with the big crowds that we saw today. Does that bring something else out of him, do you think?
5: Yeah, yes for sure at the end I think the last 15k was the hardest of the of his life so uh, so everybody was crying it was a it was a, a special feeling to to be there in this part in Belgium it's crazy. it's the the country of cycling so it's super nice offer oh, a celebration now yes
3: of course a silver medal for the Dutch with Dylan van Baaler then I mean Matthew van der Poel, we were not certain how good he would be obviously still coming back from the Olympic Games, where he crashed in the mountain bikes. Uh, perhaps he will be a, another notch further on for paris Bay at the weekend. But uh, Van Baalers, I mean, he had a tough time himself, hasn't he? Because uh, he crashed in the welter and, and fractured his pelvis and then pulled out of the race in the final week. Um, so a good result for the Dutch in the circumstances, I guess. And uh, the Danes... Uh, Rich, you mentioned the Danes and how strong they were last week when we were looking ahead. And uh, I suppose they would be reasonably happy with a bronze medal at the end of it with uh, Michael Valgren. But especially when you consider they had quite a bit of bad luck in the race, several crashes for um, some of their riders early on. And uh, Valgren was there in the final group, chasing Alaphilippe, but chasing in
1: vain. Yeah, I, th- I think in the end the Danes were uh, pretty happy. Well, Valgrim was happy with his his bronze medal. He made the point as well that all three of the medalists are uh, Generation 92, um, all born in the year 1992 and have grown up and raced together a lot so they know each other extremely well. Um, and he also spoke very movingly about uh, Chris Anker Sorensen who, of course, of course, tragically died on the eve of, of the World Championships Um and you know was was keen to to pay a tribute to him uh, after the race. Two more significant players in the finale um, were Nielsen Paulus of the USA, who's really appeared to sort of step up since the Tour de France this year. Won at San Sebastian, of course, and rode a very very strong race. Um, in, in the hunt for a medal until the end, finished fifth in the end, but he was very, very happy with his ride. Somebody less happy with his ride, but he finished just one place further back was Tom Pidcock of Great Britain, who made a late bid to bridge across to that group that fought it out for the silver medal. And he had them in his sights in the finishing streak, but had just left a bit late. So he was a bit unhappy at the finish. Um, Pilas was very happy. Let's hear first from Nielsen Poulos and then from Tom Pidcock.
5: Oh, super happy. Just really happy to be there. I uh, didn't have the punch in the end, but I kind of knew that going into the sprint. So I played my cards, I think, to the best of my abilities. And yeah, I just I'm, I'm I'm very satisfied with the way I rode today. There was no chance. I mean, in the end we wanted to bring him back, but I think all of us knew how strong he was when he went and it was hard to to stay cohesive for the whole race so chapeau to him and I'm just super happy with my ride today That was a big effort you made at the end
1: there Tom but um, I guess that's not really the result you, you came for
5: No we, we
0: did we, well we came here to win and uh, yeah play my cars a little bit wrong but I'm pretty happy with, with how, I, how I rode today
1: It was a, a very attritional race wasn't it did it sort of pan out the way you expected
0: No honestly it was we were, we were proper racing almost all the day you know 270k of racing, and yeah, for me to have yeah that in my legs at the end, I think that's a pretty good sign. I've built really well from the welter, and uh, yeah, just 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 play my cars wrong, Bit of uh, inexperience, I guess. Were but, you
1: surprised that it was so so so, on, right? so far out?
0: Well, I mean, it was the French making the race like that, and uh, they were the ones who kicked it off, and they're the ones who won. So uh, I was surprised, but I guess it worked. Lessons learned for the future, though. Yeah, yeah, for sure, 100. Um, percent Yeah, World Champs. Uh, yeah, everyone is on top, in top shape, best riders in the world. It's uh, yeah, takes takes some experience to win, I think. Wow, yeah, wow had um, yeah, Wow Jasper up there. you had uh, Dylan up there. So yeah, it was not, and the Italians had a guy there. So yeah, it's kind of difficult by myself. And I should I should have committed, but I feel if I committed, then yeah. I'll, I, did, I wanted one attack, you know, and uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't uh, work out of my way, but it was unbelievable racing. It was like we're racing a stadium, not on, on roads. It was unbelievable. It was incredible. Like chants and singing, and yeah, it was uh, unreal. Yeah, it was like a football match. I mean, yeah. Yeah, difficult peaking for the Olympics and this. Yeah, that, that's the biggest thing, you know. I was 100% for Olympics, took a bit of uh, downtime, tried to build up to this, but I wasn't quite, quite 100%, I would say, but yeah, I think mainly it's more tactics today, and uh, yeah, the World Champs is about one place, and that's getting a rainbow jersey. No one's going to remember who was second and third today, it, it, it doesn't matter, you know. It, yeah, it's nice getting a medal, but in, in uh, yeah, next year, two years, no one, no one knows who uh, was second, but people want to know Alaphilippe's double world champion. You know the Belgian crowds uh, yeah, they were incredible. But they put, they kind of shot themselves in the foot, you know, with the pressure they put on on their team. It was, uh, I mean, they did an unreal job, but you know, they made it made it near impossible for Wout to win. I mean, if he won, it would have been the best ride ever. Um, let's let's face it.
2: Well Rich Paulus's ride really continued this upward trajectory that he's been on the last few weeks and months, and I think he's very much in line to get more and more responsibility from EF education first next year. His issue, or the issue the team's going to have is knowing exactly how best to deploy him, because he, he's one of these riders who's so versatile, um, you know, looks as though he could, well, has at times looked as though he could develop into a grand tour rider a gc contender and then you know one san sebastian was fantastic on a course which as we said was was pretty Flandrian in nature as well as geography um at the weekend so he was one of those riders who you know having been in the in the two two key moves so the one that formed with about 90k to go and then um, in the, the the sort of survivors group at the end, along with Valentin Madouas and Dylan Van Baaler, that I thought they were well doubly impressive. Really quite something their ride.
3: Right? Yeah, and Pitcock, I mean, disappointed perhaps that he left it a little bit late and or or missed the Ala Philippe move and then missed the counter move. Um, obviously did very well in this part of the world in the spring, didn't he? Winning uh Brabansa ahead of Van Art and uh, obviously the gold medalist in the mountain bikes at the olympic games and then rode the welter a little bit i won't say anonymously but a quiet welter obviously building up towards this and uh, i thought great britain actually rode a pretty solid race Uh, swift got into um the the, for the first big move with 170 to go and then when they missed the middle move uh, great britain were very um, prominent at the front uh, riding hard and then Pidcock got himself into uh, the final move with 40-ish kilometers to go um, but yeah just a, a little bit of inexperience perhaps when it came down to the, the very final move but you know we can't really chide him for that I mean Van Art and uh, Van der Poel and a lot of other extremely good riders didn't ha- have what it took to uh, mark Alaphilippe either so um, certainly another
1: big result for Pidcock. Any disappointments, Daniel? There were quite a few uh, people who suggested that Peter Sagan was was back and that he was an outsider for the the title, but he he won the Tour of Slovakia, of course, recently, but he rode a pretty anonymous race, didn't he?
2: Yes, he did, Rich. Um, As I mentioned, I was out running on the circuit over the weekend and there was a huge, there was a big Peter Sagan flag and a big contingent of Peter Sagan fans just opposite the... Stella Artois Brewery, um, just next to the canal in Leuven. But I was, I left Leuven thinking that as far as Jean René Bernardeau and Total Direct Energy are concerned, Peter Sagan will not be reassuringly expensive. Um, do, do you remember that? Oh, remember that good. the advertising tagline? Um, because oh, I like it. yeah, I would have been slightly worried if I was Jean René Bernadot watching the the world championship road race he of course assigned sagan to a very expensive deal and i think opinion is split isn't it really in cycling about whether sagan can can rescale his former heights and whether that's going to turn out to be a good deal or not i, I mean i'm i'm not sure um i wouldn't wouldn't rule out either of the two eventualities you know success or failure for that for that move. but i did think he would ride better um, he was really a bit of a ghost wasn't he on Sunday I thought it was an ideal circuit for him and he said that himself uh, before the race it was it was perfect for him I, th- I think he was unhappy um, he came into the mix zone on in Antwerp on Sunday morning and he sort of said he declared ah, no interviews no interviews because his, his personal press officer Gabriele Uboldi I understand was not I don't know whether it was the Slovakian Federation didn't hadn't given permission for him to be there or he he wasn't there anyway and and this um, had had left Sagan pretty perturbed and what
3: about uh, Michael Matthews because again I thought the course would perhaps suit him for Australia but uh, he was in the Sagan group and uh, not a great day for the Australian team really
1: he was not very happy at the end because he had obviously received, well, he was, he was getting information um, lap by lap of how many of his Australian teammates uh, were pulling out the race. And he felt a bit isolated in the end. And and he felt that, that having support there might have, might have helped him make it into that, that front group. Um, We'd also, I'd I'd also mentioned Caleb Ewan as a a real outsider, had it been a different kind of race with a, a big group arriving at the finish. And, and actually after watching the women's race and to a lesser extent the other 23 race I, I wondered whether that was a possibility for Sunday that it might be a big group but the way that it was raced meant that that never did become a possibility and one one of the things we saw a lot of over those few days of the road races were cramp cases of cramp and Caleb Ewan was was one of those riders um, who suffered a serious cramp attack by the looks of things but I was struck by how many riders uh, uh, suffered from cramp and I think there's obviously the the nature of the circuit. Those those hard efforts. Getting out of the saddle points. a lot, often, yeah. Often from a standing start, yeah. And and also, on a circuit like that, the, the and narrow roads, the difficulty of, of drinking and eating and, and, and remaining fuel. And, pelt, um, and
2: pelting journalists with uh, energy bars and gels. Well, so that didn't well, that's not going to
1: help, is it? No. <laughs> that's not going to help. When you see your favourite your favorite journalist standing by the side of the road and you, you you feel it's more important to chuck an energy bar at him than to eat that energy bar. I mean, it's an understandable reaction, um, but probably not a sensible one. Anyway, so much for the, the disappointments. It was, it was a, it was a brilliant world championships. The whole week was fantastic. Um, I think, a great sense of relief uh, among the organisers. Thomas van den Spiegel, as I've mentioned, is was was very involved in organising the, the week. And they, they wanted it to be the, the biggest world championships in history. And, and they felt that COVID would prevent that from happening. But people did turn out, they didn't need the, the huge international audience that a world championships usually has because the Belgian people came out in such huge numbers. And, they were treated to some some great racing. You know, from the t- the time trials onwards. The the men's time trial was, was great. The women's time trial was great. Um and the road races were, were really exciting. And, you know, that that circuit in Leuven was it was like a Kermes circuit. And had that been, you know, the final if it had the hundred the final hundred kilometres or so taken place just on that circuit, it might have been quite a disappointing race in a way. But we had this mix of these really tough climbs of Smesberg and Moskenstrat Strat were really hard climbs, coupled with this, this circuit that lent itself to more aggressive and faster racing. So it was, it was a great mix. Were you
2: chaps aware before the Worlds that the, the circuit in Leuven was essentially the course of the GP and um, Jeff Skerns, which takes place every year? No. Yeah, and, th- and this, the climb, the Wampers climb is, tr- well, usually where that's decided, although it's a race that's often won by sprinters as well, but um yeah, I, I didn't know that, but it-, it-, it made me wonder um when I left Leuven yesterday, you know, th- these World Championship circuits, there's always a climb or a key point that for one week in, in their lifetime, our lifetime become the sort of name on everyone's lips, and then it's very difficult to remember them years later. you know, we talked about the Innsbruck World Championship and, you know, how many people would be able to tell you that the final climb there, I mean, I I looked it up to jog my memory, was the Grammar Borden and then last year at the Imola, the Galisterna climb. But, you know, these sort of slip quite quickly. They're they're quite sort of ephemeral in our memory. But I I do wonder, I will certainly the images of that that wampers climb will be uh, sort of burned into my retina and um, I I do think that this will will be uh, a world championship that remains well that that certainly lingers very long in the memory and and it it will continue to be ranked among the greatest ever and among the the most memorable one day races we've seen
1: and it helps obviously that that the winner of the men's road race was Julian Alaphilippe uh, a rider who is in that you know category of i suppose now great great riders um who won it in in fantastic style um that that helps enormously it wasn't you know we saw this kind of flat out racing and and a, a bunch of exhausted riders arriving in love it, it it could have it, there was a moment in the race where i thought it was it was falling a bit a bit flat you know i think it was almost like two boxers who just who were just at the end, uh, and and couldn't really raise an arm anymore. Um, so the fact that we were treated to this, um, you know, the, the, this this these series of attacks from Alaphilippe and that he was able to win it, really, it really gave the race the denouement that that it deserved and the winner that it deserved. Um, even if initially the the Flemish fans were unhappy at that, I think in the end, uh, and certainly for the podium uh, presentation in the centre of Leuven around the fan zone. The atmosphere was unbelievable and the reception for Alafleet was very, very warm.
2: Also, just quickly to add on that, Rich, you know, it, it's easy to get a little bit self-righteous about, you know, fans booing or fans being hostile, but that is something that is integral to every great sort of sporting atmosphere, you know. This kind of animosity towards a perceived enemy and, you know, I, I know there were, there were people who found that sort of disappointing and they were sort of... Um, well, wow. how how drunk the Belgian fans were probably explained a lot of it, but I think that probably um, added to to the the atmosphere and the excitement on that final lap. Yeah, I mean,
3: I do enjoy the the slow down hand gesture um, that the, a lot of the Belgian fans were uh, dishing out they did the same to Filippo uh, Ganna in the time trial didn't they um, uh, yeah I mean there's, there's obviously a, a line isn't there but
1: yeah, but and in, and in neither case Lionel in neither case the Ganna or Alaphilippe no, actually no so it doesn't work
3: down. I mean it doesn't work in fact the opposite <laughs> may be true it may uh, you know it, it, being being the, the, the away team can be a a, a motivational factor can can throw another coal on the fire, can't it? I think, I mean, obviously there's a line, isn't there? But I mean, you know, uh, sport is partisan. And um, people support their favourites, and the whole history of professional cycling—you know what, these great rivalries that we talk about, particularly the sort of the Italian rivalries, where um, the whole nation seems to split down the middle and supports one or other of a great rider of a generation. I mean, I do think there is a there's definitely a place for that. We we, we don't want a world where there's a sort of a a, a homogenous—you um, know, everyone must support the winner. Well played. As long I, as it's fun I, I would say,
1: yeah, I, and I, I would say passionate rather than partisan yeah, or, yeah. is is the, the trait that characterises the the Belgian fans because there are no better fans than the Belgians for embracing foreign riders who do really well in their races. You know, you'll find there was a big, um, there's a big Belgian fan club for Stefan Kung, for Alexander Christophe, for riders who come and enjoy and ride well on the cobbles. The Belgian fans embrace them. And one one guy um, uh, through, or I say, guy one one person threw beer apparently at Ala Alafleeb close to the finish line. But that's that's one fan, uh, and and in a crowd of that size, some people will behave badly. Overwhelmingly, the atmosphere was positive and warm, and it, it was like a football match, but not actually an old firm match. There wasn't that poison in that. Um, that partisanship there was there was warmth and there was passion that was the thing that characterized
3: yeah that. I mean I guess you, you become a Flandrian once you've won one of their races don't you that's that's exactly what happened. so uh, I'm sure that if Ala Philippe were to pitch up at the Tour of Flanders in his rainbow jersey he would uh, you know perhaps have a, a a different sort of reception from some of the the more fervent Flandrian fans
1: There were Van der Poel fans, uh, Dutch fans uh, supporting Van der Poel, who has a lot of support in Belgium as well anyway, and Van Aert fans uh, on opposite corners in the... In the fan zone area and uh you know they it was very good natured chanting between them but there there was never any there was never any threat of uh of violence i can tell you that it would have been ridiculous they'd have had to get it's over all, the over the barriers nature. you know uh, sc-
3: scrapping in the middle of the road van hooligan yeah Hooligans i didn't even and... <laughs> see
1: there weren't there weren't even the, you know the, you don't even see there aren't really stewards or or you know marshals or even all that many police um you know for which for a crowd of that size is quite remarkable and that's something we should we should acknowledge and celebrate I think rather than focus on one individual who threw who threw beer uh, towards Ala Philippe at uh, the finish. Should we wrap things up for this week chat still got lots to look forward to Pyre Bay at the weekend first ever women's Pyre Bay on Saturday. And we'll be there for that. I'm just
3: looking at the weather forecast, Richard. Uh, rain for Friday, slightly heavier rain for oh. Saturday, and and slightly heavier rain again on Sunday. So, it, uh, I mean, I put weather forecasts in the category of speculation because they can they can turn quite quickly, can not they? But it might be a damp weekend. They can.
2: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of this clamor for a wet Pirate bay. I mean, no, no.
1: I well b- being there myself and riding on Friday, I'd much rather have a nice sunny weekend. Absolutely. If it's if it's yeah. all right. Well, I'll see you there, Lionel, and uh we'll we'll I think we'll be recording an episode over the weekend at Pirate Bay. That'll be next week's regular episode to come out Monday, and then we'll have daily coverage from the women's tour for the rest of the week from Lionel, Lizzie and Rose. Looking forward to that.
3: <laughs> oh, no um, I'm looking for I thought, there, a, was a, I a thought reminder. there was a joke
1: coming at my expense but no, clearly, no, clearly no. not No. reminder a reminder that if you sign up as a friend of the podcast at thecyclingpodcast.com you'll get our Flanders special coming later this week and uh, yeah like I say much to look forward to next week as well but that's all for now thank you very much Lionel thanks Richard thank you Daniel thanks Chuck. You've been listening to The Cycling Podcast with Lionel Burney, Daniel Freib, and Richard Moore. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Adam Bowie.